oh, it's not as bad as I thought time-wise. I was just laughing to myself, saying, well, maybe they're trying to squeeze me out more and more, <laughs> push it along. <laughs> no, I know that's not the case, but um, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, the go- back to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We find in uh, John chapter 6, the only miracle during Jesus' ministry, apart from uh, his resurrection, uh, that's recorded in all four Gospels. It's also the most public uh, miracle recorded, having been done, uh, you know, before so many witnesses who actually uh, saw the miracle And because this miracle is recorded in all four Gospels, it really does emphasize, I think, the importance of uh, understanding it and our Lord's ministry. And really, it it really does uh, bring to light the uh, centrality of the Gospel on on Christ. And I think that's why it's recorded in all four um, Gospels. And you can see, even as we'll read in this passage, Uh, The miracle had a a huge impact on those who saw it. And in fact, so good, so great was the impact that it created a great divide uh, between those who followed Jesus for the signs uh, because they wanted to fulfill their own desires through Jesus and those who believed in Jesus and received him for who he is. I mean, and of course, as we said many times, this is the great divide of humanity, right? Uh, Those who, if they follow Jesus at all, follow him for what he can give them uh, in this life. And those who believe in Jesus and receive him as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of their sins and for the eternal life that he will give to us and has given to us. Those who trust him as Lord and Savior and those who don't. And so you see this contrast take place here after this miracle. The first group of people um, could only see earthly things through the miracle. They could only see things that aimed at their bellies, you might say, but not their souls, because they were blind to their true need. And so they respond to Jesus' explanation of the sign. This will come later. We'll see this next week. After Jesus does the sign and he does the miracle and he explains what it means and what it points to, their response is in verse 60 and verse 66. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And John says, many turned back and no longer walked with him. The second group concludes with Peter in verse 68. Look at the contrast. Jesus turns and says, do you too want to go? And Peter doesn't say, who can listen to what you're saying and leave? Instead, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so as we read this passage, 
and we go through it, and it is the longest passage, longest chapter in the Bible, actually. Um, I think it's, what is it, 70, 71 verses. It's really the longest chapter in the Bible, and so we might spend a couple weeks here uh, going through it, but um, the question I think that I want us to be thinking as we go through this chapter and as we look at this miracle in Jesus' explanation Uh, you'll be faced with is this. And it's the same question they were faced with. Who do you see when you see Jesus and his works? It's one way to put it. Who do you see when you see Jesus and his works? What are you concluding about him? What are you you concluding about Jesus? After all, we're going to see Who do you see and what are you concluding about him? And when you think of Jesus, do you think of Jesus as someone who primarily came to serve your earthly appetites? It's an important question. When you think about Jesus and who he is, do you think about Jesus in terms of your earthly appetites? Or... Do you think of Jesus as the Holy One of God, the true bread from heaven, who came to satisfy sinners not with the bread of the world, but by offering himself for your sins? This is the all-important question about Jesus. And so this Sunday in verse 1 to 15, we're going to look at the miracle itself and how the people misinterpreted it. Verses 1 to 15, the miracle, the sign, and how the people misinterpreted the sign of the miracle. And that'll break down really simply into the setting, the test, the sign, and the response. Okay, Setting, test, sign, response, if you want to have a little bit of notes in there. And then next week, maybe next week and the week after, we'll actually look at verses 16 to 71, and this is where Jesus is going to show the people what they should have seen. So we asked the question, who do you see, what do you see, and kind of left it hanging there, you could think about it, but Jesus is actually going to say, this is what you should see, and that's going to be very important next week and the coming weeks, the miracle and its meaning. So uh, so let's read verses 1 to 15. Let's look at the miracle. Let's see how they misunderstood it. And, and then uh, we'll dig in a little deeper. So read with me uh, John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. And, and after I read the section, we'll pray and ask the Lord to bless our uh, study. John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? 
He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. When Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force, to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony John has written here regarding, by the Holy Spirit, regarding uh, this awesome miracle that uh, the Lord Jesus performed. We thank you that you created food out of nothing here before the eyes of men that they might see and behold indeed who you are, Lord Jesus. And it is sad to see how so many missed the sign. It's sad to see how so many misunderstood and misinterpreted what you were showing them by this miracle. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to understand it more clearly, uh, that you would, Holy Spirit, guide us, direct us, lead us, teach us we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So you can see the setting here in uh, verses 1 to 5a. John doesn't say how much time passed, but he simply tells us that this miracle occurred after the discourse on Jesus' equality with the Father. Remember, he was just saying to them how he is equal with the Father He's one with the Father. He is fully God in every way. And Jesus laid out that argument for them. And, and he concluded chapter 5 by saying, all of the scriptures point to me. All of the scriptures are about me and who and what I came to do. And they all funnel into this moment where Christ is before us, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The, the uh, redemption of God has come. The kingdom of God has come in Jesus and so John doesn't tell us how much time passed from that discussion. He just says, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And so Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And so this word for mountain here, um, it could mean a specific mountain or hill, like the mountain, as if that's what they were saying, Jesus went up on the mountain. But that's not what, he, uh, what is being said here. It really means the high ground. It, it's, a, it's a generic sense of the hill country in a more generic sense. 
And he went up on the high ground there in order to um, teach him, in order to teach his disciples. Um, and so I think he wanted to be alone with them. I think he wanted to find a solitary place. This is what Mark says in Mark 6.32, to rest, to catch their breath, to sit down with his disciples, and really to have some one-on-one -on -one time with them and, and maybe debrief about all of the ministry that they were doing. What is often happens as you read the Gospels during the ministry of, of our Lord, the people that had become so enamored with Jesus' signs, they actually began to follow, follow him. So here he's trying to get, in a, get away. Um, he's trying to, to have some space, and these people um, can't leave him alone. Like they just, they just come and following him. And if we were those people, I'm sure we would be doing the same thing, right? I mean... Jesus is there and all the things he's doing, if you had a great need or someone was sick in your family or yourself, um, or, or you're just curious about this miracle worker here, you probably would have been following him up to the mountain too, right? So in any case, Jesus says that he goes up onto this hillside, um, which is the goal in heights really is where he is, the, the region there. I've never been there, but um, they crossed from uh, the west to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and the hill country would be the Golan Heights area. So this is where Jesus went up into the hills, and he's there with his disciples, and here he's sitting, and Jesus is talking. You can picture his head down, and maybe they're sitting in a circle. He wants to talk to them, and his eyes lift up. And he's looking down from the heights, and he sees a large crowd coming toward him. Now, as I read that, and I often think about this in the gospel, it really is hard to imagine the level of interaction that Jesus had with people. The amount of people that Jesus talked to and touched and sat with, right, it almost seems re relentless. Like it just seems, like I was at the beach, took my dad to the beach earlier this week, I was sitting with him on the sand, and, and I'm watching wave after wave come in. Just crashes on the shore, one wave and another wave and another wave. And I thought, you know, that must have been what it was like for Jesus. Wave after wave of people kept coming to him over and over and over again and this loud large crowd of people now are coming in and I thought you know how many times we complain about the amount of uh, work that we have and we we feel the waves of everything coming at us and and you often hear it on TV and on the news or people give each other counsel and they say you know what you really need is some me time right you just need some me time to focus on yourself and to help yourself and, and to just kind of refresh yourself. And the thing is, is Christ, even when he had me time, if you want to call it that, wasn't really time that Jesus spent to entertain himself and to, 
taken the sights of Israel and to kick up his feet on the shores of Galilee and drink a margarita. This is not what Jesus did when he had me time. He went and spent time with the Father. If he wasn't spending time with the Father in prayer, he was spending time with his disciples alone. But even when he was with his disciples alone, there was always those waves and crowds of people that really just wanted to come to him, and not even for the right reason, for their own reasons. And there's nothing wrong with taking time to enjoy the fruit of our labors. I think God created us with that view. But it just reminded me that our Lord did not come into this fallen world in order to enjoy it, did he? He came into this fallen world to do one thing, and it is to redeem it. And Jesus came to restore it to what he originally created it for. And what you know about Christ when he came into the world, he came to work, that work of redemption. And it was a work of love, and it was not easy. It it's a work that would make even our Lord tired. He was, after all, in the flesh. He was, like, he was man, just like you and I. And even though he's God fully, he still felt the burdens of people, and it tired him out. And yet, you never see Jesus, when people are coming to him, turn away from them, do you? But what you see Jesus do in all the accounts is when people came to him, he lifts up his eyes and he, and he looks at them. And he sees them with compassion. And he humbles himself. And as, as Dean read from John 13 earlier, he becomes a complete servant of men. The God of creation comes to serve. And so Philippians 2, 3 to 8, Paul puts it like this. And, and, I, and I read this specifically because sometimes we in our own lives, we can get tired by the people that want things and talk to us. And moms, you know this well, right? Kids are always coming at you and they always have questions and you feel like you're never, it's never finished, Right? And the only reason I know this is because Nancy sometimes shares this with me, right? As, as a mom, you're always, you're always on, and the kids are always want something, right? And yet I just thought about this passage to remind, to remind you, not in a rebuking fashion, but to remind you that Jesus knows how tiring it is. He knows what it is like to have that kind of, of pressure. And even us men, I know you have your own pressures with work and family and things going on. And yet Jesus lifts his eyes and he knows. He knows. And Paul says in Philippians 2, 3 to 8, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so from the point until he died, he was obedient and he worked, and he loved people, and he was compassionate on them. And we're called to have that same resolve, and he knows when we are weak. So our redemption was a great work of God, and it consumed our Lord to the point where he becomes a servant of men, and he gives his very life for sinners on a cross. And so when Jesus sees them, even though he knows their motive, that they want something else from him, he has this compassion on him, on them. In fact, Matthew says he, he healed their sick. This is before the miracle. He healed their sick. Matthew 14, 14, Luke says um, when he gives his account that he was teaching them about the kingdom of God in Luke 9, 11. Mark says that he had compassion on them because when he saw them, they were like sheep without a shepherd, and so he taught them. This is all before the miracle, okay? And so the thing that John stresses in this miracle that the other three don't, which we'll get into why it's significant, is John actually notes in verse 4, you'll see there, he says that the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. The other gospel writers don't mention the Passover, but John, John does. John wants us to know that the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, before he does this miracle, was at hand. And I think he notes this because his readers are Gentiles. I think that's part of the reason. He, he needs to explain the Passover to them and what time of year was. But I also think John notes it because what John does more so than the other gospel writers is he really does give us a theological perspective on Jesus' life and ministry, more so than the other gospel writers. Uh, John really ties, as we've seen here, much of his discourse and his miracles and explanations in a theological fashion, explaining that Jesus is the Son of God, for example. So he's unpacking this, and he wants these readers to know uh, that when this miracle takes place, it takes place specifically near the time of the Passover. So it's not just a time reference. It, it, something's tied to this Passover, I think. So if you know what the Passover is, right? The Jewish Passover celebrated the exodus out of Egypt. And so when um, God was saving his people out of Egypt, he gave them a lamb. Each of them, he said, take a lamb, and I want each of your family members to sacrifice this lamb, kill this lamb, and take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorposts of your home so that when the angel of death comes, that the angel of death would do what? He would pass, pass over them. And so they took this lamb, and they were to eat it with haste. Like, this is part of what they were to do in the Passover. They were supposed to eat this lamb that they had slain. And so... If you remember John's gospel, we already know that John has identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And so this reference here to the Passover, it actually sets the stage for what's going to follow, which is this lengthy discussion on the bread of life. The lengthy discussion on the bread of life and basically Jesus in that discussion is going to identify his flesh as the true bread that must be given for the life of the world. The bread that must be eaten if people are to have what? Eternal life. This is what Jesus is going to say later on. He is the bread of life, and to receive eternal life, you must eat the bread of his flesh. Just like the Passover lamb was to be eaten, so Jesus is presenting himself to us as this lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that we must receive in, in, in eating his flesh and blood. You can see why people, after they heard this later, they're like, what the heck is he talking about? That's a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Don't want anything to do with it, and they leave. But this is Jesus is presenting himself here. So one more thing about the Passover, it actually helps us to understand why they were so enthusiastic about what they had just seen in this miracle. Because the Passover was the most massive Jewish feast. It was like a national holiday. So if you think of our holidays and you think of nationalism, what date would come to your mind? Probably July 4th. July 4th, everyone gets together and there everyone came for the Passover. Nationalistic zeal and pride is very high. It's very lifted up. They're, they're remembering them as a people coming out of Egypt. They're under Roman oppression and rule. And so you could see that all these people coming from all over, when they see Jesus and what he's able to do, their response is to do what? Is to make him king. They want to make him king now. They, they think this is the perfect earthly king for us. This is the one we've been waiting for. This one, Jesus, he can care for us from cradle to grave. He could just take care of all of our needs. This will be the perfect government, the restoration of all things. This is the one who came to deliver us and to help us. And so these 5,000 men who were there were more than willing to support Jesus, an army of sorts, that they could help Jesus to establish his reign. They could fight for freedom against Rome. He could deliver them as Moses delivered them from Egypt. If Moses could do it, certainly this Jesus then can do it. That's how they see it. This is how they see the sign, and this is how they view Jesus. And so Jesus, of course, Jesus doesn't come to establish a kingdom of men, among men. Jesus doesn't come to establish a new national identity and reign for Israel as a nation there. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is not just the great prophet, as they rightly noted from Deuteronomy 18. Jesus was not just a king 
which they rightly identified him as. Like those two things weren't wrong, right? He was a great prophet, like they said. And when they wanted to make him king, he very well could have been king, and he makes the best king. And so they're not wrong on that, on that end either. But what they didn't understand is that when Jesus came, he did not just come to be a great prophet who speaks God's words. He did not just come to be a great king who justly rules over his people. But he also came to be specifically a priest who dies for the sin of his people, who gives his life as an all-sufficient sacrifice on behalf of his people in order to bring his people to God, to make a ransom for his people. And here's the thing. When you look at Jesus, when I ask the question, who do you see when you see Jesus and his miracles? You must see all of Jesus. You must see the whole Jesus. You must see Jesus as the great prophet, as the great king, as your priest. You must see Jesus as the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and came to make a ransom for your soul, to cover your sin. If you look at Jesus as something other than that, and all you see is a Jesus who is powerful, if that's all you see in Jesus, a great ruler and king, you don't know Jesus. If all you see when you think of Jesus and you see this miracle if all you see is, boy, Jesus was a great teacher. You don't know Jesus. Because that's not the whole picture. That's not the whole story about Jesus. He came to make a ransom, a king and a prophet and a priest. And he came to give his life as a ransom. And they needed to see the complete Jesus not just the parts they wanted to see in him. And even his own disciples, you'll notice here, lacked a certain amount of faith and understanding to know him completely and what he was able to do. And this comes out in the, in the test that he puts before them. So here they are, this large crowd. He sees them coming. And then when he sees the crowd... He already knows what he's going to do, but he turns to Philip and he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? John says he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. That is, Jesus knew that he was going to feed them and he puts before them, and he was going to put before them a sign of his identity as the Messiah, as the bread of life. So Jesus knows he's going to do this. He doesn't act on the fly here. He sees him coming. He knows, but he turns to Philip, and he, the way he words it is interesting. Philip, he doesn't say, where are we going to get bread, does he? 
He says specifically, Philip, where are we going to buy the bread? And I think he does that for a reason. So Philip answers him, where are we going to buy the bread? He's like, 200 denarii worth of bread, Jesus, would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One denarii was a day's wage, okay? So when you're talking about 200 denarii, Philip is saying, listen, eight months of wages, eight months of wages couldn't even be enough to give them even a nibble on a, on a bread. It's nothing, Jesus. I don't, where are we going to buy it? And so in verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, and I think he's saying this more of an incredulous manner. He's, he's not saying, hey, Jesus, here's an opportunity for you. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to him, he's like, yeah, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Good luck with that. That's basically what he's saying, right? But what are they for so many? So neither of his disciples really understand it. And you got to get their perspective. When John says there's 5,000 men, he, he hasn't even included, he only says the 5,000 men, I think, because he wants to paint the picture of why they came around Jesus to make him king and how all these men did that. But there are actually probably estimates are for anywhere from from. I've heard 10 to 20,000 people there because of women and children. So we call it the miracle of the 5,000, but there, there could very well be upwards of 20,000 people, large crowd that's coming to Jesus. And so you get the disciples, and they're like, this, this is not even enough for a little bite. Where, where are we going to buy the bread, Jesus? I mean, we're already in the wilderness, right? And so they're at their wit's end, and they, they can't even begin to how to answer Jesus' question to buy this food. And they might be thinking, you know, because Passover is near, man, God did miraculously deliver his people from Egypt. He fed his people in the wilderness with manna. But this is crazy. There's no way we can buy bread to feed all these people. Here's why I thought the word buy was interesting. Because what maybe, and I'm not scolding them or rebuking them, but what you might have thought about came to my mind is Isaiah 55, 1 to 3. Isaiah 55, 1 to 3. God says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. 
here that your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love, sure love for David. You see what God is saying in the Old Testament? I do not need, nor do you need, money to have bread of life. You do not need to buy your salvation. You do not need to give anything in order to win the Lord Jesus Christ into your favor. Jesus actually says, come to me without money. Come to me freely. You cannot purchase this bread. And Jesus says in this passage, he is going to say, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And this is why I think he looks at Philip and he says, where are we to buy bread for all these people? And the answer should have been, Lord, we don't need to buy bread because you are the bread of life. And I think another interesting connection with the Old Testament comes from Ruth. This is more indirect. But our brother Fidel called me, uh, texted me, couple days ago and he pointed me to Ruth not to this passage but he asked me another question about Ruth and so I thought well let me read Ruth I haven't read it for a while so I, I read Ruth 4 but here's what I noticed as I was reading it in the context of this what kind of loaves did the boy have he had barley loaves right and what does it say after they Jesus did this miracle and they ate John says they all ate and they had their fill and they were satisfied, so much so that they collected 12 baskets of leftover. So I was reading Ruth, and when Ruth and Naomi returned to Bethlehem, they returned during the barley harvest. And Boaz has Ruth sit next to the reapers of the barley harvest, and as she was allowed to sit there and to eat, it actually says in Ruth that she ate her fill and was satisfied and she had some leftover and she gave her leftover to Naomi. And so here you have her redeemer, Boaz, during the barley harvest of all harvests, give her more than enough barley, and food. Boaz presents himself to her as a restorer of life and a nourisher. And I don't know if that's John's connection here. And I don't, I just know that our Lord doesn't do anything by mistake. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And I don't think it's by mistake that of all the, the things that are emphasized here, of all the types of bread that that little boy could be carrying, He's carrying barley, barley loaves, which are not, by the way, big loaves like we think of. They're really like little crackers, enough for a small boy to eat. Anyway, all points to Christ. And so with that, our Lord is going to give them a great sign of who he is. And Jesus says in verse 10, have the people sit down. John says there was much grass in the place because Passover's in spring. It hasn't burned away yet. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Remember, this is probably more like 20,000. 
And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and also the fish, and he says, as much as they wanted. So, you understand that this is, other miracles of Jesus were done to restore something already there. Does that make sense? So when he heals the sick, the sick person is there and Jesus is restoring their health. When he turns the water into wine, the water is in the pot and he turns the water into wine. When he raises the dead, the dead body is there and he gives life to the dead, right? Uh, the leper is healed and so forth. All these other miracles, Jesus is kind of restoring something back to its state. This is the only, not the, I don't know if it's the only one, but it's, it's a miracle where Jesus actually creates something new. Does that, does that make sense? When, he's, when he has the bread and he has the fish, Jesus is making something out of nothing right before their eyes. He gives barley to one disciple and a little bit of fish for that group. It keeps coming. It just keeps coming. And the disciple takes it and he walks it to that group and Jesus makes more out of nothing and he gives it to this disciple and he takes it to that group. And so all these 12 disciples are all taking fish and bread constantly to these groups. Jesus is perpetually, continually creating from nothing more fish and more bread and he's feeding the people so much so that they had an abundance and a leftover of barley loaves, and they all ate to their fill. Do you understand the power that is being displayed before their very eyes about who Jesus Christ is? This is not some magic trick. This is God creating from nothing right before their very eyes. And so as fast as the disciples could distribute what he gave them, so fast did Jesus create them anew in his very hands. And every time they came back, Jesus had more for them. And then, of course, the Lord lets nothing go to waste. He actually says, collect the leftovers. So they get these 12 baskets. And then I just thought about you kids. I thought, and maybe you husbands, guys, leftovers are not bad. Jesus made leftovers, and he had them collect them, and we should be able to eat leftovers. When, when there are leftovers, it's good. It's good, and Jesus didn't waste anything. And so I appreciate uh, you moms. You work hard. and um, Anyway, I'll stop with that. But. So there were 12 baskets left. I think it's a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel. I think that's why, and, and the apostles there. And I think it just is a picture of God's providential care for his people 
that he met their needs in the wilderness as Jesus did here, and all of the Gospels draw attention to it and to the abundance of God's care for his people. And so the response of the people then is significant, and I already went over their response earlier, so we're not going to go over it all again, but I just want to remind you that they missed the point of Jesus' miracle And really, my prayer is that you don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. If you are are here and you're listening to this, don't miss the point of Jesus' miracle. When these people saw the sign that he had done, they said... This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus left them. When you see this miracle, Jesus does this miracle not so that you can look at Jesus and like so many people will preach, Jesus can give you your best life now. He's all about here and now for your happiness. If you're thinking that way about Jesus, you are missing the point of Jesus. If you draw a line in your head from this miracle directly to how Jesus can serve you as your king, you're missing it. If you draw a line from this miracle directly to how Jesus can meet all your earthly desires in an earthly kingdom, you're missing it. You're you're missing the picture. This This is not how Jesus is presenting himself. The truth of the matter is that Jesus Christ came and presented this miracle and this sign before them so that you might believe that he is the Son of God and that by believing in his name that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and by placing your faith in his finished work on the cross, you might be saved, forgiven, redeemed not for this earthly life and shell to live here in the best possible way, but that you might be redeemed unto eternal life. Jesus used this creation of this bread, his creating it from nothing to feed them, to point them to how he is the God of providence, the one who abundantly provides, and who alone is the sufficiency of his people. That's why Jesus did it. And he was going to go to the cross, and he was going to finish his work, and he was going to redeem his people. As he says in verse 35, like we'll see next week, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that it has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Beloved, if you see Jesus as the bread of life and you have received him, you've placed your faith in him, I want to remind you to be satisfied with Jesus. Just be satisfied. What more do you need in life that's going to give you joy? Be satisfied, and if you hunger for something, hunger for Christ. Make him your pursuit and hunger for him. If you don't see it yet, if your belly, if God is still your belly, as Paul says in Philippians 3.9, if your God is still your belly, my prayer is that your eyes would be open. Because if your God is still your belly, do you know what happened here when they came and wanted to make Jesus king? What did he do? He went back into the mountain. He went back into the mountain away from them. And so if you see Jesus wrongly, the fact of the matter is that Jesus has fled from you into the mountain. He has fled from you into the mountain. And the only way for Jesus to then be with you is that you would place your faith and trust in him and he says come unto me and I will give you all that you need and fear not and so the Lord's table that we're coming to now is where we recognize what Jesus did for us on the cross as our prophet, priest, and king, that he, he broke his body on the cross for us, he was crucified, and he shed his blood so that he might make atonement for our sin. And so this is for those who have believed in Jesus, the whole Jesus, if you don't see Jesus that way, we would ask you not to receive communion. If, if you have not placed your faith in the Lamb of God who takes away your sin, and if you have not repented of your sin and turned to him for forgiveness, if you don't see the whole Jesus as your Savior, then we would ask you not to receive this communion. If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, you've received him as the bread of life, then we welcome you to enjoy this. But just understand, this is not something to be taken lightly. You must examine your heart 
You must examine your life as you come to the Lord's table. And if there's sin that you're clinging on to, if there's sin that you won't let go of, if there are wrong thoughts that you have about Jesus and you haven't humbled yourself before him and you haven't repented of your sin, then the table um, is not something you need to take, you should take lightly, but you should examine it. And it does, it's not like it takes a big crisis to do it. You can do it in your chair. You can cry out to Christ, the bread of life, for the forgiveness of your sin right where you sit. Confess your sin, beloved, if you are in Christ. Repent of your sins. And then enjoy the grace of his bread that he's given to us, his body. Memorially, okay? So, Rory, if you want to come up. Let me read Isaiah 53, rather. And then I will pray for the elements, and then one row at a time you can come up and receive. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made him his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for 
the transgressors. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we come before you this afternoon just really amazed at your glory and majesty and your power. We know that we weren't there when you turned this bread and created it before the witnesses that were there and fed them as much as they wanted and gave them as much wine as they, or as much fish as they wanted. We know that you turned water into wine and it overflowed as much as they wanted. You give us as much as we want or need because you give us the fullness of yourself. Indeed, you are the bread of life who came down from heaven the bread of life, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you came to give us yourself so that we might live and that we might have life. And we thank you for that, Lord Jesus, for taking our sin and our iniquity upon yourself. And now as we come to this table, this last supper, as it were, to remember that great sacrifice that you have given to us, we pray that you would even be with us here and bless us and remind us that you have given us more than we could ever ask or need or desire. For you have given us yourself. And so may you bless the elements as we eat them. May we be reminded of your love for us and your kindness and your goodness and your fullness and your providence. And may you bless the juice, the fruit of the vine that we drink so that we might be reminded of the completeness of our atonement and the salvation of our souls and that you have promised to take us home. We remember you and we thank you and ask for your blessing now. In Christ's name, amen.